0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, we continue making our way through Matthew's Gospel. As Pastor Holst mentioned, even praying. This is a tough text before us. We reach chapter twenty-four, and we'll look this morning at verses one. Through 28 of Matthew chapter 24. So let's give careful attention to this, the public reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 24 beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you, uh, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Amen. Thus for the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help as we look to this text before us. Let's pray. Lord, do come to us. Help us, we pray, as we look to your blessed, holy word. Gracious Lord God, please come and bless even your unworthy servant who seeks this morning to feed your people. Send your spirit upon me and upon all of us. Oh, Lord God, that by the preaching and by our hearing and receiving, we might trust and we might treasure and love you all the more deeply by your grace to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as my sermon title suggests this morning, in some ways, our, our our passage takes us from marvelous, glorious heights to miserable, horrendous depths. I mean, just just think about it. We begin with the disciples looking at these obviously impressive temple structures, pointing them out to the Lord, and then we end with this gruesome image of vultures descending and feeding on a corpse. What a contrast— I would suggest to us that in some ways the contrast is fitting because it speaks to the great contrast between what the disciples were expecting in terms of what they thought would be happening and what Jesus ends up revealing to them in terms of what actually will be taking place. He kind of dashes to pieces their expectations about the messianic kingdom, which in their minds involved the glorious future of a glorious temple. Here Jesus tells them somewhat publicly, he tells them that it's all going to be dashed to pieces, as it were. And so we see in verse 3 that on the Mount of Olives there, they ask him privately, teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Notice that those are two questions when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age now in the minds of the disciples i don't think they understood that those were events separated by time there was obviously a lot of confusion which would need to be cleared up in terms of what they thought the how they thought god would be establishing his kingdom and so forth but i believe and pastor holst and i both agree on this we talked about this i believe that that what we have in this section was two big events that Jesus was teaching about. We have first, we have the, let me say first not chronologically, we'll speak to that, but we have the the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the events surrounding that big event, and then we have Jesus returning again from heaven at the end of the age, both events are in view in the Olivet discourse, and these events are so closely tied together that it's not always easy to tell when, when when we're speaking about one event and when we're speaking about the other event. One thing is clear. Both events will be glorious demonstrations of what Matthew teaches us in this gospel. Jesus is the messianic king, and he will express his messianic reign even in these big events. And even more wonderfully than that, amidst all of this, he will do so by preserving his kingdom disciples who go forth proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations that's what Jesus teaches his disciples that's what's before us in our text this morning our message this morning is this that Jesus teaches his disciples about enduring and preaching uh, even amidst the events of the, the the temple and the world destined for destruction so I have four points This morning, the last one will be very brief, but we're going to consider the destruction of the temple, and then secondly, the destruction of the world, and thirdly, the preservation of the disciples and their preaching, and then we'll end on that last note, uh, the, the return of Christ in unmistakable glory. But consider first, the temple would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, and the old covenant would be brought to an end by King Jesus, ruling and reigning King Jesus. Such an important point. Uh, I'm having us begin thinking about 70 AD events. And in that sense, we're kind of going chronologically uh, for our first two points this morning. But I don't believe that the all of it discourse itself should be interpreted uh, as describing events in chronological order. Prophets often would describe things topically rather than chronologically." In fact, sometimes the pro- prophet would be describing one single, or what seems to be one single event, when, when really there are multiple events in view. Sometimes we use the illustration of seeing mountains, right? If you can imagine uh, children, if maybe your family's driving up to the mountains for a vacation, maybe you, you're going to stay in a cabin up on a certain mountain. As you're coming close, you think, hey, we're getting close to our destination. There's the mountain. But then you, you come closer and closer, and you end up being disappointed to find out that well this was just a smaller mountain or a hill uh, which was sort of in this in view of that larger mountain and so we still have you know miles to travel yet you're disappointed. I guess that can't really happen in this age. this age of a GPS usage, right? You can have to imagine there's no, no cell coverage out here for the illustration to work. But in some ways, it sort of helps explain the, the confusion of the disciples. They thought the, the kingdom was about to come in all of its glory. They come to find out, no, there are multiple mountains. There are different stages in which God is establishing his kingdom. At any rate, it should not surprise us if some of the language in the Olivet Discourse confuses us because it seems to be describing both the events of 70 AD and also the events of the return of Christ. It should not surprise us if the text sort of bounces back and forth sometimes between speaking about one event and the other. And yet, as we shall see, there are certain statements which are more easily identifiable as pertaining to one event or the other event, in that regard, we could mention one other significant difference about these two events, and that is this: with, the, with respect to the temple of destruction, the disciples were given a general time frame. It will happen in your generation. We see that in verse 34, which we'll look at next week. Not so with the return of Christ at the end of the age. Children, when will Jesus return from heaven in glory? When will he come? What's the answer? We don't know. No one knows. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. We don't even know which generation. We don't even know which millennium, we do know that he's coming and it will be wonderful and glorious. But the destruction of the temple would take place in their generation. And there were even signs. Maybe the idea of uh, uh, the the vulture analogy is like, you know, vultures, they can spot a corpse and there are signs you need to look at. Maybe the idea is when you see vultures gathered, you know, you know, there's a corpse, there's a dead deer or something, right? And so there will be signs but the, the, this is the view, and uh, this is the uh, event and view in our in our text. I think, particularly as we look at verses fifteen through 22. I think these are verses which do describe the events of 70 AD. I think the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21 and verse 20 and following, help make that clear. Luke describes a time when there will be armies that surround Jerusalem, and and God's people were to know that its desolation is near, and they were to flee to the mountains the same way we see it in our text. So this is that period uh, known as the Jewish revolt against Rome. The nation rebelled against the Romans. They said, we're tired of submitting to you, and they kicked him out. Well, that wasn't maybe such a good idea. Rome didn't take kindly to that kind of thing. The empire came against Judea and Jerusalem hard. And we're not going to go into all of the details of that whole ordeal. We know that Rome came in two separate stages, interrupted by the death of the emperor and their own civil war. But eventually armies came and they, they surrounded Jerusalem. The city came under terrible siege for five horrible months. was unimaginable suffering. And I think we can say so much about this. I think it's most helpful to think about this again by way by way of contrast with what the disciples were expecting and what Jesus was teaching them, sadly, would actually happen. And so they expected the the temple as a glorious place of God's holiness, and here Jesus warns them, no, it's going to become a place of terrible sacrilege, abomination of desolation. There's going to be terrible, horrendous defilement. And to the disciples, the the age of the kingdom would be a, an age of peace. You know, rest from their enemies. There'd be peace on all sides. God's people would would know the blessing of, of living safe and secure under His protection. Instead, what happens? We read in verses sixteen through twenty about how this this is Jerusalem would be a place where indeed you're running away to hide in the mountains. I think in some ways perhaps the saddest part of what we see is verses 23 through 27 where we read about how these all of these uh, messianic imposters, those claiming to be the Christ. I mean, we can just imagine the disciples going, how is this possible? The Messiah is going to come and reign in glory. Everyone will know who the Messiah is and how could you possibly be following false Christ? And so they were coming to understand Christ is not going to reign with his visible glory. Not yet. Not yet. Back up to verse 21. We see this suffering in Jerusalem described as something so great that it's described as a tribulation greater than anything that has ever been in history or ever will be. That language and never will be. By the way, I think that that's part of the proof that Jesus has in mind uh, an event that's not ending of the world. It's in time, right? There's history before and history after the world would continue. But it's going to be a terrible, terrible tribulation. And we we might at this point say, well, can we really say that that describes what happened in 70 AD? Did they really suffer such terrible tribulation uh, it, it does help us to understand if we read a little bit of the historian Josephus, who just describes how bad things were in terms of the awful, awful suffering uh, under siege. The, the supplies were all cut off, and so there was famine, there was starvation, people dying even of starvation. And when, when Rome finally did enter into the city, we, we read about how countless thousands were slaughtered. I'm not going to quote Josephus because some of his, his descriptions are too gruesome to even mention from the pulpit. But I will say this: He described how the, the the Romans were crucifying the Jews to the number of 500 per day, 500 crucifixions per day. He writes how there wasn't enough ground; they ran out of places to put all of the crosses, and they ran out of crosses to put all of the bodies terrible, terrible suffering. It was indeed really that bad. But probably the worst part of it all, probably the way, the reason it can be described as so uniquely awful is because of what it meant spiritually. This was the covenant nation. This was the house of Israel. And just as Jesus predicted, as we saw last time, your house, Israel, your house will be left to you desolate. The temple would be destroyed. This would be a a culminating act of judgment upon the sinful nation. It was like the world had come to an end, and indeed it was so bad that it really does even point back to another event that brings us to our second point this morning. Not only a destroyed temple, but the world itself was destined for destruction. In, In the end, Jesus would not only dash those stones to pieces, he would come and Burn up and destroy the entire world. As you look at our text, I think that's really what is in view. Up in verses through uh, four through fourteen, I think we see that particularly the way verse fourteen ends when it says, "And then the end will come." I think this is the end, end. But now, in this point, we're focusing not only on the final outcome, but we're we're focusing also on all of the events throughout history leading up to the end and so this is this is all of history. Really this is the the the, the, the uh the the history from the first and coming second comings of Christ. And the focus here is not only on Jerusalem then, but it's on all of the nations. The, the gospel will be preached to them all. That's the wonderful good news. We'll get to that. But, but, but in fact, if you look at verse seven, we see that Jesus speaks of nations and kingdoms. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So unlike the, uh, the 70 AD events, this is not just one place and not just one generation. This is the whole world and this is all of time and that's why as I said before they were they were not to assume any particular time frame to these events they were not to think or better to say we're not to think God's people throughout history are never to think oh you know war is breaking out it must be the end of the world they were think the op- they were to think the opposite uh, Jesus instructs them right Uh, Note well the exhortation of verse 6, you will hear of wars, you'll hear of rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed by these things. These things must happen. It does not mean that the world is ending anytime soon. Same is true with respect to famines. Same is true with respect to earthquakes. Jesus was basically saying, when you see major world catastrophes like this, don't panic. And don't think you can, you can start assuming things about, you know, uh, the, the timetable of my return, just exactly when the end will take place. This is a rebuke to those in the church who give themselves to this thing, you know, the prophecy enthusiasts who, who uh, see the big events they read in their newspapers and they start trying to figure it out, I think we can see that this points to this happening and soon Jesus will be coming again. Jesus says, don't do that. He says, just the opposite. Don't try to look at world events and interpret things to be able to predict the timing of my return. Don't overreact it's easy for us to pick on the uh, you know the dispensationalist the prophecy enthusiast there is a general exhortation for all of us here right don't panic christian when big things happen as if i'm not in control don't run around like chicken little every time an acorn falls off the tree and hits you on the head you know the sky is falling down the sky is falling down the world is ending don't overreact trust the lord trust the lord Bad things may happen. The the end of the world may yet be a long, long way off. Verse eight says, all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. The the mothers among us, you who have given birth. You understand this, right? Especially if you had those early uh, contraction, they call the Braxton Hicks contractions. You know that those can take place even when you're weeks away, even months away from giving birth. And the point that Jesus is making is that in all of these kinds of events, just as Pastor Hulse rightly prayed, I think, or, uh, all of these will take place all throughout the, the, the world, the end of the world. In fact, these are events that were taking place even before Jesus came. But on into the Messianic age, even during that age when, yes, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, King Jesus, these things will continue and really the question for us this morning is, what are we to think when these things happen? As those who belong to Christ, as those who are his kingdom disciples, what reminder should it be for us when we hear about a devastating earthquake in Morocco? It's a reminder that Christ is ruling on his throne. Things are happening just exactly as our Lord Predict, predicted. These are for those who are in rebellion. These are reminders that judgment is coming lest they repent. Same is true of famines. Same is true of, uh, of worldwide pandemics. The same is true of wars. It was true when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And it's true even when we see uh, wars in the world Today, Jesus is ruling in and through and over all of these things. He's accomplishing his kingdom purposes, ruling over all that takes place. Even when false uh, Christ imposters rise up, as we see in verse five, as well as verse 24. You know, they were there in 70 A.D. They continued to come. They will be all the way down through the age until Jesus comes again. Messiahs in various forms, false prophets, as we see down in verse 11. They arose in a major way, even in the early church, and they continue today. Again, the disciples struggled to understand how could this be? How could this be happening in the age of the Messiah? And they might be asking the question, and we might ourselves be uh, you know, sometimes tempted to ask the question, when these terrible things are happening, where are you, Lord Jesus? Where would the Messiah be during this age when we're told his, his, the Messiah has come? Where are you? What are you doing? Well, the answer is Jesus is ruling by his spirit, working in and through his disciples. And that brings us to our last or our third point this morning which is that the saints would endure and preach the gospel throughout the earth. Oh, what what grace this morning. You know, we focused on judgment events, but let's not miss the grace. God's grace is amazing, and this text is filled with grace. Let's start with verse 22. Look at our Lord's words. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut Short. This is interpreted different ways. I'll just tell you what I believe it. This is, I believe this is a reference to 70 AD. And Jesus was saying that, that this would be such an outpouring of God's wrath, such terrible judgment would come upon the earth, is that if, such that if God allowed it to continue, it would spread out. And it would wipe out the entire planet, exterminate the human race. We don't know how that might have happened. Maybe the Romans would have finished off all of the Jews and turned on one another like the Jewish rebels were turning on each other during the whole event. But the point is, when when God removes his grace, his restraining grace, this is what happens. Why does the human race even continue for one more day? Only because of God's restraining grace. Only for the sake of God's elect, even amidst all of the destruction. God never forgets his great salvation plan. His gospel goes forth to the nations and he graciously preserves his saints through whom he will send forth his gospel. One way he did so was by giving his people, even in the, in the uh, events leading up to 70 AD, grace to heed his command that we see in verse 16, flee to the mountains. This actually happened. The ancient uh, church historian Eusebius writes about this, that, that during the Jewish revolt, 67 AD, the Christians, they fled. They, they went east. They crossed the Jordan and they went up and they hid in the mountains of Pella, and an amazing thing is that an event where by some estimates some one million Jews were slaughtered, as it turns out, very few Christians died. God is certainly able to preserve and to protect his people. Now, this does not mean that Christians won't be called to, to die a martyr's death. We know that's true. Nor did it mean that they didn't have to suffer greatly through these events. We see from verse 19 that, that, that some of the women had to endure this tribula- tribulation while pregnant or while nursing infants. Can you imagine what it was like for our dear sisters in the early church? These were hard times for God's people. It's interesting that Jesus tells them in verse 20, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. You know, that would make for frigid temperatures up there in those mountains. But notice he doesn't promise that it won't happen in the winter. Or on the Sabbath, you can imagine maybe a a situation where suddenly things were so bad in your particular area that you had to flee. You didn't have time to go back and get your cloak and stay warm. You heeded your Lord's command, but you were hoping that maybe in flight you'd be able to find somewhere where a shop's open and you can stock up on supplies, but alas, it's the Sabbath. The the, the shops are closed. The point is that in this sin-cursed world, which is under rebellion, which is destined for judgment, the saints would be called to suffer. They would suffer, but praise God, we never suffer as the world suffers. For the world, this would would be signs that this is a world under God's judgment. For the saints, this would be the blessing of participating in the sufferings of Jesus Christ with God's favor upon us. But they would suffer Indeed, we see in our text that not only would they suffer with the world amidst major catastrophes, but they would suffer particularly the hostility of the world against Christ. A world that hates Christ would also hate them. We see it in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is this is. No doubt, in in some ways, referring to the, the unique sufferings the, the apostles would suffer, but Christ's people, his servants, would suffer down through the age. And even if not specific persecution for the sake of the gospel, trials would come. Dear Christian, you know that. You know that God has not promised you a a life free from suffering, a life where where, where you'll be comfortable all the time as if hardships will never come. No, but he has promised you grace, grace to uh, his presence with you, sustaining you through any trial that comes in your life. He has promised you that for you, those trials will, will not be for your harm, but they'll be for your spiritual good, to strengthen your faith, to show that your faith is genuine. We see that in our text, in that we see that the opposite is also true, right? This brings a warning. For some, tribulation would, for some, tribulation does expose them as hypocrites. This is why it's always good for us to examine ourselves, see that we are truly of the faith. And this is why we must be strong in faith. This is why we must be strong in the grace of Christ. This is why we must give ourselves diligently to the means of grace, commitment to God's word, commitment to the sacraments, and to prayers. Friends, you don't, you don't know what kind of trials might come in your life, even tomorrow. But you do know this, that the evil one seeks to destroy, shipwreck your faith. And sadly, we know that that happens for many we see it in our text. We see it in verses 10 through 12. Many of those who, who had professed Christ, not only did they turn away from him, but they turned against their own believers. We see this description about how they would uh, betray and even hate those whom they once had embraced as brothers and sisters. We have to guard our hearts and see that that doesn't happen. Jesus warns in verse 11, many false prophets what will arise to lead many astray? And look at verse 12, Lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. We know again, we know that this happened much in the early church. There were false prophets that came, many were led astray, and it continues today, and it will continue down through the ages, even up until Jesus comes again. But praise God, something else will happen. And let's just end on this wonderfully encouraging note, what we see in verses 13 and 14. The one who endures to the end will be saved. There will be those who endure. And this is our doctrine of perseverance. Yes, we must persevere. the brothers and sisters, we will persevere. True believers, God's God's elect will persevere in the truth of the gospel. Is it possible, verse 24, looking at verse 24, possible for the elect to be deceived and at last to perish in their sins? Sins, No doubt, false teachers, they'll try to come and deceive us as well. But no, in the end, at, at last, God's elect will finally persevere. The scriptures do make that abundantly clear. But I think verse 14 is, is proof of that. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. God will. He is ruling. He's reigning and he's reigning particularly by preserving his elect, his people in his truth such that they will go forth, hold fast to the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Part of our uh, duty to persevere part of the, the the great work god will do in us is is that we will give ourselves to the propagation of the gospel yes by you know supporting and praying for those who go forth and preach but also as we give ourselves in the various ways that god calls us and enables us to 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 uh, proclaim the gospel we have opportunities to do that don't we We can help out our brothers and sisters at Zion and volunteer to be part of those outreach events. We can go knocking on doors. Certainly, let's get behind these things in our prayers with zeal that the gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth. And it's all of grace. It's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those who persevere, those who truly believe, will be saved for 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 us who trust in Christ. You know, we don't we don't live in fear that uh famines and earthquakes as if they mean God's judgment is upon us. No, because we proclaim a gospel of a savior who suffered far worse than any of these events. When he hung on a cross, he bled and he died, he took upon himself the wrath of God, suffering the torments of hell. This is the gospel of grace. Christ has suffered for us. So no, we don't live in fear. Dear Christian, look to him. Look to him and persevere in faith in the one who so loved you and don't ever let your heart towards him or towards your brothers and sisters grow cold, right? You may have to endure frigid temperatures in the mountains if God calls you to do that. But fan into flame your love for Christ by the power of the gospel. Persevere to the end. Persevere until you die or until Jesus comes again. And just end on that note this morning. Jesus is coming again. I'm not going to say much about it. I left the good part for Pastor Holst in that, in that regard. But 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 the, but the one thing we do see in verses twenty six through twenty seven, there will be no more no more deceivers, right? It will be unmistakably clear, children. When is Jesus coming again? We don't know, but I'll tell you this: when He does come again, you will know. Don't ever let anyone tell you, "Come, see Jesus. He's He's out in the field, right? Or He's hiding in the inner room. No, He's coming." and he will come with such unmistakable glory. It will be like lightning flashing from the east into the west. And yes, it will mean judgment on the, 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 the apostate and unbelieving world, but for us, it will mean salvation. So we say, blessed is he who comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Indeed, we say that and we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We we long, O oh Lord God, for, for that day when the famines and the earthquakes and the wars, all of the sin and misery of this sin-cursed world will be no more. We long for the kingdom of glory. We long to see your blessed face, O precious Savior. So we do say come, but we say come even now. Come, we pray this day. Fill us with your word and cause it to bear much fruit, the fruit of true faith and obedience. Help us, Lord God, to continue in this your word and show ourselves to be true kingdom of kingdom disciples. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.